you have your Bibles, please open to Philippians chapter 2. We've been studying Philippians for a number of weeks now. Our sermon title has been in, is, is, is entitled, To Live as Christ, which we've taken as one of the main themes of the book of Philippians, when Paul says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If you remember, Paul is in prison as he writes this to the church back at Philippi that he started some 13 to 15 years earlier, and Paul loves this congregation, and he seeks to see them uh, standing firm against those that would oppose him, both from outside threats as they are experiencing persecution um, in their town, and from threats that actually arise from within the church. Excuse me. And what Paul is going to argue for today, that is, if you are going to stand firm, and if you are going to walk with Jesus, then what you need is the mind of Christ within you. Um, you need the power of Christ active in your life, um, that, and you need to walk with Jesus by faith. Now, um, this morning, my title will be The Mind of Christ. It'll be from the famous uh, Christ, uh, Christ hymn. Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words this morning. The famous Christ hymn from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, before I get into that, I want to just speak a minute about the, the mind of Christ and why that's important. When we talk about Jesus, most of us, I would say, when we talk about Jesus and think about Jesus, it is usually in terms of what he has done. That's usually what we do. We know that Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins. That's what we teach even our smallest of children. We know that he took our sins and carried them away as far as the east is from the west. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. We know that he is the Messiah, but far too often we limit our understanding of Jesus to the things he's accomplished. We think of him only in the terms of what he has done, and and those things, by the way, are incredibly important. But in our text today, Paul is going to give us a look at what Jesus accomplished through the very mind and eyes of Jesus. What was Jesus, here's the question, what was Jesus thinking as he underwent his life and ministry? Now that's a crucial question because it shows us who Jesus is as a person. What he thinks and feels and knows and does based on the choices that Jesus makes. Now we have a relationship with a person, with the person Christ Jesus, not simply a relationship with the events surrounding him. Does that make sense? It's a person. Jesus is a person. And if we are to be like Christ, then we need to know how he thought and how he felt so that we can think and feel like Jesus. Now, Paul's main point in our text this morning is that we're to have the same mind in us, the same way of thinking in us that was in Jesus. We're to live our lives and conduct ourselves thinking Jesus' thoughts after him. Now, Jesus thought and felt and made choices based on his nature, based on who he was most deeply. And Paul is going to stress in our text this morning that when Jesus chose the path before him, he did so on purpose. Jesus chose to do certain things on purpose based on who he was, how he thought, and how he felt, and that is incredibly important. 
He knowingly, hear me, Jesus knowingly, consciously, he knowingly and willingly laid aside his rightful place at the Father's right hand and emptied himself into human flesh and became a man. Jesus chose to come to earth as a servant. That is a choice he made. The king of the universe chose to serve instead of rightly demanding that he be served. Jesus chose the path of humility. Jesus chose the path of obedience. Jesus chose the path of shame and death. That is the mind and heart of Jesus. It is the mind of humility. It is the mind of dependence before God. So let's read Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and let's kind of break it apart so we can understand. This is one of the most Christ-centered passages in all the New Testament. Um, Hear what Paul writes here, this famous Christ hymn. He says, have this mind among yourselves. Christians in Philippi, Christians in Huntington, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, Amen, and let it be so this morning. I want to break our text into three sections, um, simple sections, but... I want you to see these have far-reaching implications for our lives. So first, I want you to notice, first, incarnation. God becomes a man. Look at verses 6 and 7. After Paul says, have this mind in you among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he says, um, there beginning in verse uh, verse 6, he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Paul's point here is that at the incarnation, incarnation means the taking on of flesh, that at the incarnation, God emptied himself into a man, the man Christ Jesus. This is God, when you find Jesus lying in a manger in Bethlehem, this is God wrapped in skin. God takes on flesh and becomes a man and is born into the very world he created. Now, this, has, this raises huge theological questions. Sometimes theologians ask the question, well, what did Jesus empty himself of? Well, I'll quote somebody more smarter than me. John Calvin says this. He said, Christ indeed could not divest himself or empty himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. So when Jesus empties himself, it's not an issue of him becoming less than God. It's simply he concealed deity 
in human form. Now, I think Paul's point isn't what Jesus emptied himself of, but what Jesus emptied himself into. That answer is that Jesus emptied himself into a true human being with a true human nature. The pre-incarnate Jesus emptied himself into human form and was born among us at Bethlehem. Now, I want to say that this is a mystery of mysteries. The hypostatic union of Christ, that at the same time, Jesus is fully and truly God, and at the same time, he is fully and truly a human being. Though we cannot fully understand it or explain it, hear me, this is a biblical principle you need to know. Though, you can, though we cannot fully understand it or explain it, that does not make it any less true. That's what the Bible says. So, we must affirm everything the Bible says. We dare not add to it or take away from it. And the Bible affirms this truth about Jesus everywhere, that he is both God and man together. This is what John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then you skip down to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is Jesus. Or Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. And verse 19 goes on to say, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the incarnation. God becomes a man. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, became fully and truly man, such that, such that all who saw Him and spoke with Him and touched Him knew they were in the presence of a real human being. They would say things like this, isn't this the carpenter's son? They knew him as a true human being. When the apostle John reclined on his bosom, he heard Jesus' fleshly heart beating. John would open his letter by describing Jesus this way. He would say, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who would come. God, in skin, which says, He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. And then He shifts and says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But the point is, Paul begins this hymn that Jesus, in the incarnation, God becomes a man. So what is the mind of Christ here in the incarnation? What do we learn from this? What is Jesus thinking in this moment? He did not, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to tightly. 
He did not use his authority or his position as the Son of God to, for his own advantage, for his own glory or advancement among people. He did not use it for his own interests, but for the interests of his Father and for the interests of our future happiness and joy. Jesus says it himself in Mark 10, 45, that I quote so often. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served. That would be every, every right that Jesus had as the Son of God. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That is the mind of Christ that is at work here that Paul says we need to pay attention to. Jesus used everything about him, not for his own interests, but for the interests of his Father and for the good of his people. That is the kind of mind we are to have in ourselves. But notice how Paul shifts from, from the incarnation, God becomes a man, to humiliation, Christ becomes a curse. Look there at verse 8. In verse 8 it says, he says, but he emptied himself, picking up in verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is humiliated. Now, we tend to think negatively of the term humiliation, that, in, that, that someone being humiliated is for them to be knocked off their high horse and to be put back in their right place. Like last week, uh, with great joy, I watched um, Texas be humiliated by Arkansas. Okay? That's humiliation. That's somebody who thinks they're up high on the pedestal and then they're knocked down to where they really ought to be. That is not the case with Jesus. This is not what happened to Jesus. Humiliation was the path that he chose himself. Notice, what, notice the words. It says, he humbled himself for the glory of the Father and the good of his people. Taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself further, not just by taking on human flesh, but by coming as a servant. And he humbled himself even further by choosing the path of shame and death on the cross. Hear me, as a servant, Christ willingly chose to lay down his life. This is the mind of Christ. He willingly came to bear the curse of sin for us. After all, what does the Old Testament say plainly? It says, everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus takes the curse for us, and this was the mind of Christ to do it willingly. Listen to what Jesus says of his own words in John 10. He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This was the mind and heart of Jesus. He says, I am doing this willingly, knowingly, choosing the path of humiliation and shame, bearing the curse of sin for those who don't deserve it. And I want to point out here that this is exactly what Isaiah saw in his vision of Jesus in Isaiah 53, that, the perf that a perfect man would come and stand in the place of ruined sinners. Listen to Isaiah 53 again, verses 10 through 12. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many be accounted righteous. And he will bear their iniquities. And he says, he shall divide his spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. Now I want to I talk to you about the mind of Christ and why this is so important in relation to Jesus laying down his life willingly for us. Okay? Now we know, we, when we think back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, we know that when someone brought their offering to the temple that they would lay their hands on the head of the animal, the sheep or the goat or the bull, they would lay their hands on the head of the animal as it was slaughtered, and they knew that this animal was somehow taking their place and bearing their sin. But the chief issue in sin was never really addressed as they did that. Here's the issue. The issue was one of the will. You see, sin involves the will, not just the body. The animal's body was offered, but never according to its will. The animal represented the punishment for sin, but it was always an incomplete representation of us. That's why the, that's why the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin, because that's not a proper representation for what we need to deal with sin. The animals did not know what they were doing, nor were they willing, really, to do it. This is what makes Jesus the only appropriate sacrifice for sinners. Jesus absolutely knew. He was absolutely willing, and He absolutely chose to be obedient to the Father as our substitute. He held nothing back. Jesus held nothing back in his willing and joyful obedience to the Father. And he would say wholeheartedly to the, to the Pharisees, he says, I only do the things that please my Father. And that is the mind and heart of Jesus in his humiliation. And that is why he can be a faithful high priest, because he didn't just offer his body, he offered all of who he was. Sin doesn't just, sin is, our problem with sin isn't just that we sin in our bodies, it's that we choose to do it. And Jesus chose obedience. This is why we sang that hymn earlier, and can it be, let me read you again the second and third verse, in case you missed it. John Wesley was writing about this passage in Philippians. He says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." Think of that oxymoron, the immortal God who is immortal comes in human form and dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore. Let angels' minds inquire no more. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. This is what happens in Christ's humiliation. He becomes a curse willingly for his people. That is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus did what we could not do.
that he took the place of ruined sinners, that all who would repent of their sin and put their faith in him would not have to experience the curse themselves, but he would bear it in their place. And then finally, because of this, you see the next movement in the hymn, and it is exaltation. You see the complete reversal of this. Incarnation, God comes down to earth. Humiliation, he takes and bears the curse of the curse of sin and God's wrath for us. And because of Christ's mind, because of his heart and his obedience, he is exalted to reign supreme. Look what it says in verses 9 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, therefore, for these reasons, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, to the glory of God the Father. Now hear me, I want to try to wrap this up quickly, but because of the heart and mind of Christ, because of who He is at His deepest, God the Father raises Him from the dead and exalts Him at His ascension to His right hand. Jesus, as a full and true man, as the Son of God, walks into eternity worthy of his seat. He walks into eternity victory, victorious over sin, death, and hell. And he is exalted as supreme over all. And there are three or four truths I want to point out here. First, what does this mean, Christ being exalted over all things? First, Christ's exaltation means that we live today, hear me church, we live today and forever under the present reality that Jesus is ruling and reigning as Lord over all. Today, Jesus rules and reigns exalted at the right hand of the Father. Today, Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. We live today under the present rule of Jesus. He is Lord. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is there interceding for His children. He is exalted to the highest place. Second truth. The second truth is that Christ's exaltation reminds us of our limited evangelistic opportunities. It's limited. We only have a limited amount of time before Jesus returns and he judges the quick and the dead. Hear me. There is a day of judgment and accounting coming for every single person. And as Christians, we joyfully and willfully recognize Jesus now as the exalted Lord of all. But one day, one day, everyone else will too. And it won't matter on that day if they're willing or not. Because the picture in this text is every knee, will every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In evangelism, we are offering the invitation for everyone to do that willingly and joyfully now. To receive the rewards of Christ. But on that day, on that day, it is a day of judgment. We have friends, you have friends and you have family members who are perishing. They are not ready to stand before Jesus and to give an account. And that day is coming. Jesus' exaltation and reign right now also promises the truth that we have a limited time, limited time before Jesus breaks open the eastern sky and he rules over all and meets out justice. We have limited opportunities. And third, I want you to notice this, third, 
I want you to notice that in our text that according to Christ's exaltation, that following Jesus by faith, having his mind be our mind, and living for him is the path of God's approval. Do you notice that? That Jesus' obedience even unto death was the path of him glorifying God and experiencing his Father's joy and approval. Hebrews 12, 2, one of my favorite texts says this, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That the path for us is the same path. We have to have the same mind in us that was in Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And last thing I want to point out about Christ's exaltation, and I've kind of hinted at this already, is that in Christ, the, 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 the final point I want to make about Christ's exaltation is that this is the same Jesus forever. I want you to notice this, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was God truly and fully in eternity before Bethlehem. And he was God truly and fully here as a man. And he is truly and fully God now, exalted and reigning forever as king. So what does the mind of Christ teach us? What is Paul getting at? What does he want the Philippians to understand? What kind of attitude does he want them to have? And here it is. And I'm going to say it as plainly as I can, and it should be very convicting, because it is for me. Here is the main principle behind this text. We must never think that we have a right to be treated better than Jesus was treated. That's the mind behind the text. You have no right as a Christian to demand or to think that we have a right to be treated better than Jesus who humbled himself, leaving glory behind, taking the form of a man, coming as a servant, willingly laying down his life for the glory of God and the good of others. We have no right to think that we would be treated better than Jesus. After all, did not Jesus teach this? Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Jesus said, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. As Peter says, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus waited humbly. He waited patiently um, for the Father's vindication. So again, the mind of Christ is the mind of humility and dependence on the Father. Let me just give you a few things I worked out this week. Pride says, I don't deserve to be treated this way. Humility says, I will endure being mistreated because Jesus was mistreated and he's my example. Pride says, this is my life and I'll live it however I want. Humility says, the mind of Christ says, Jesus is Lord and I will joyfully follow him no matter what. Pride says, I'm the boss, I'm the supervisor, I'm the manager. I don't have to do low jobs or dirty jobs. And the mind of Christ says, I lowered myself to serve others. There is not a job too low or too dirty for me. Pride says, I've been here the longest. I've given the most money, and therefore I should have the biggest say in what goes on. Humility says, I don't have any rights. 
This isn't my church. It belongs to Jesus. I only have the privilege of giving myself away for the good of others. Pride says, I deserve to be served first. I should get the biggest piece of ham. I'm the most important person here. But humility says, everyone should be served before me because I'm the least important person here. Pride says, everyone should care about what I think about things. And humility says, the only opinion that matters in this place is Christ. Pride says, I sure am glad Pastor Jacob is talking about those people. Humility says, I'm as guilty as everyone else in the room. And pride says, those people are wrong and need to repent and get right. And humility says, I am wrong, I need to repent, and I need to be right. Now hear me, the mind of Christ matters day in and day out if you're going to live like Jesus. Husbands, are you humbly giving yourself to your wife and families in selfless service? That's what Jesus does. Bosses, supervisors, are you serving your employees not to increase your revenue or production, but because you genuinely care about their well-being? That's what humility does. And I want to close by giving you a warning. Just a quick warning. A prideful person can and will take everything I just said and do it. They'll serve others because it's the right thing to do, and they will not be humble or have the mind of Christ while doing it. Because humility is measured not by merely doing the right thing. It's only the mind of Christ if you're doing it genuinely for the good of others and not for the praise of men and not to pat yourself on the back. That's the mind of Christ. Humility is selflessness in light of Christ. It's not self-serving or self-satisfying. So truly loving and serving others can only be done with the mind and humility of Jesus. So what should we do? Here's my final question. What should we do? We should all humble ourselves and fall on Jesus. We should fall on Jesus. God grant us Christ-like, selfless, self-giving humility to pour ourselves out like Jesus for the good of others. Remember, as I said last week, Jesus, others, and then you. That is the path to joy. May we have the mind, this same mind in us, which, was, which is ours in Christ Jesus. We don't look out for ourselves. We look out for the glory of God and the good of others. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move into a time of invitation. Father, pray that your word has been spoken clearly, adequately. Father, I pray your spirit has touched our hearts, Father, because I know in this room my own heart is filled with pride so often. And Father, I am self-seeking and self-gratifying and selfish and uh, self-aggrandizing, Father, my heart is an idol-making factory of itself. So, Father, I pray that we would, in humility, look to Christ, who humbled himself, even though he deserved everything. And, Father, he willingly laid it aside, leaving us an example that we should follow. Lord, help us now. Speak to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.